Good morning. Good morning. Peace be with y'all. Uh, don't, don't sit down quite yet, especially kids. I, I, I want the kids to stand, and we need to get some wiggles out, if you know what I'm saying. We need to get some wiggles out. And I know that some of you adults need to get your wiggles out too, so just get all the wiggles out. Get all of them out. Wiggles. All right. All right. All right. Go ahead and uh, find your seats. Go ahead and find your seats. All right. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, My name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. If this is your first time here, we're very glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to be looking particularly at verses 35 to 49, but particularly focusing in on verses 44 to 49. We looked at 35 to 44 last week, and we're going to pick it back up in in verse 44 and go on into verse 49 this morning. Uh, And if if you don't have a Bible with you, you should uh, grab one of those white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can turn to page 560 in one of those Bibles, and that'll get you where you need to go. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 15 is the chapter number, that's the big number, and then verses uh, 35 to 49, those are the smaller numbers in between the sentences, and that'll get you where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home, that's our gift to you. All right, let's dig into 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, I know I just told you to sit down, but let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word out of respect and honor and reverence for God's word. Let's listen with reverence and with joy. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans... Another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, the story of the Bible, as we've been seeing, is a fairy tale. 
Um, not in the sense that it's not true. Of course, it is true. It's a fairy tale in the sense that this story never ends. Uh, C.S. Lewis reflected on this. He said that fairy tales always end in a distinctive way. Um, well, they don't actually end. They just live happily ever after. And there's a sense of completion. There's a sense of resolution, but it never really ends. Well, similarly for us as Christians, life never ends. Uh, we die, of course, but death doesn't have the last word because Christ will raise us up on the last day. Resurrection has the last word. We die, but Christ will raise us up on the last day when he returns. Uh, completion comes, resolution comes, perfection comes, but life never really ends. We just live happily ever after. And that's what Paul has been teaching us for the last several weeks as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, particularly last week, we started with looking at verses 35 to 49. And here Paul is telling us something of what our, our bodies are going to be like in this happily ever after existence. There's, they're, they're going to be the same bodies we have now in one sense, but in another sense, they're going to be new. They're going to be transformed. They're going to be immortal and imperishable. They're going to be more glorious than we can even imagine. Our life, our bodies, our existence will finally be perfected in at perfect peace. No more illness or injury. No more pain or poverty, no more aging or atrophy, no more decaying or death. And what we see as we focus in on verses 44 to 49 this morning is that this is what we were made for. This, is, this was always the plan. This was always the goal. We were created for this. And because of sin and death coming into the world through our first parents, we're hopeless to have this in and of ourselves. And so God came in flesh to redeem us for this. And so our big idea for this morning is this. The plan God had for glory since the beginning is fulfilled in Jesus. The plan God had for glory since the beginning is fulfilled in Jesus. And we're going to consider that under uh, two broad headings. We were created for glory. We were redeemed for glory. Created for glory. Redeemed for glory. First, created for glory. Last week, we left off in our text looking at verse 44. Paul saying this kind of curious thing. He says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Uh, now, remember the, the, the distinction that Paul is making here is not that our, bodies are, uh, that, that our bodies as of now are material and that our bodies in, in the age to come are going to be immaterial, as if that would even make sense. The contrast he's making here is that our bodies as they are now are soulish bodies. They're natural bodies. Our bodies are animated by our souls. That's what the word uh, translated as natural here means. It means soul or psyche. Uh, But our bodies at the resurrection will be spiritual. And we need to capitalize that S in the word spiritual. He's saying that our bodies at the resurrection are going to be animated by the Holy Spirit. They are going to be supernaturally energized and glorified by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. This is precisely what Paul is getting at in Romans eight eleven, where he writes, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit will give life to our mortal bodies, making them immortal and incorruptible and perfected and transformed. And what we see here in verses 44 to 45 is that this was actually the plan all along. 
Uh, we were created for this glorified existence. We were created for glory. We were created to one day receive the transformation of our bodies from these, these soulish bodies we have now into glorified spiritual bodies. And Paul writes, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body, meaning that our natural bodies actually anticipate or, uh, or, or point to the reality that there is a spiritual or glorified body as well. Uh, and he points us to Genesis 2-7 to, to make his case, the creation of Adam. Now, don't miss this because Genesis 2-7 is pre-fall. Okay, Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3, right? Genesis 2-7 uh, is before the fall of man, before death and sin. So Paul is not merely repeating what he said back in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. He's not merely saying that death came through Adam and resurrection came through, uh, through Christ. That's true, but that's not all that he's saying here. He's saying, Genesis 2, 7, there's no death yet. There's no sin yet. But still, Paul is saying Adam was created in Genesis 2, 7 with a natural body that anticipates a spiritual glorified body. That's why the tree of life was planted in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, 9. Uh, and while little is actually said about the, the tree of life in, in, in Genesis, it, it's clear that this tree of life has potential to give humanity immortality. Uh, or to put it how Paul is putting it here, it had potential. It had the potential to give humanity spiritual glorified bodies. That's why we see the tree of life again in Revelation 22 too, when the earth is gardenized and glorified. But what happened? We, we know that Adam was not successful in obtaining this spiritual glorified body. And, and not only that, but he, was actually, he actually sinned against God. And he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so they were exiled from the garden so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life lest they live forever. That's Genesis 3.22. We were barred from the tree of life, this tree that has potential to give immortality. So from Genesis 3 onwards, humanity is not only, going to, not, only not going to enter into this glorified state, we're actually completely prevented from doing so because of the penalty of sin. And instead of the potential for glorified bodies on a glorified earth, death comes. Our bodies not only continue to be these natural, soulish bodies, but they actually also become corrupted by sin and subject to death, and they decay. That's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, when he says, For as by man came death, by man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And I know that all of this may seem kind of complex, and it is. Paul's not afraid of entering into the complexities of the biblical story. And we shouldn't be either. But what it all boils down to is very simple. We were created for glory. We were created for something even greater than the Garden of Eden. We were created for Eden plus. We were created for spiritual bodies, for glorified bodies. We were created for nothing less than glory, for consummation, for nothing less than immortality and perfection, for, for, for something far more beautiful than anything we could ever see or imagine. We were created to live happily ever after. That's what this is getting at. And we instinctively know that, don't we? I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I spent some time in it this last week. If you haven't read it, you should. But the author of the book, he doesn't pull any punches. He's very clear about the reality that uh, life is kind of horrible. Uh, 
life is horrible. You might be too spiritual to say it or too optimistic to say it, but, but life is full of just a sort of like insufferable monotony. It's, it's full of, of just a number of unspectacular difficulties. It, it's full of suffocating pressures. And not only unspectacular difficulties, but the spectacular as well. It's, it's full of pain and suffering. Life is just full of weariness. And sometimes when we wake up in the morning, we, we might wonder how we're even going to continue on with it all. And I, I don't know about you, but that's the truth for me. And the author of Ecclesiastes, he says much the same. He says, everything is vanity, striving after wind. One generation dies, another one comes, nothing really changes, not really. And yet we keep going on with it all. Why? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.11, it's because God has placed eternity in our hearts. We instinctively know that this cannot possibly be all that there is. We instinctively know that we were meant to live in a reality far greater, far more glorious than this. We were created for, we were created for glory. The natural body anticipates the spiritual body. Our bodies as they are now anticipate our bodies as they will be when Christ returns. We just naturally long for glory and beauty and goodness, and we can never truly be satisfied with anything less but we're left unable to reach it because Adam failed, and when he failed, we all failed with him. Glory, pleasure, beauty is constantly what we're after, and we get small glimpses of it here or there, but it always only seems to slip through our fingers. And yet God in his grace, he's not done with us. He's not done with his creation. God did not decide to just kind of wrap up creation or to disown us. No, he he moves toward us in redemption. That's the kind of God he is. That's the heart of God. And and our hopelessness and our helplessness and our sin and death and decay, he moves toward us in love and redemption. Therefore, he not only created us for glory, he redeemed us for glory. The Son of God took on our humanity as the second and last Adam to redeem us for glory. We We are redeemed for glory. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here Paul calls Christ the last Adam. And he does this because he's, he's contrasting two key figures in human history. You know, the, the reality is that all of, all of humanity's history is really just wrapped up in two people, Adam and Christ. Adam was the federal and biological head of humanity. And when he sinned and, and fell and was condemned in the garden, we sinned and fell and were condemned along with him. And I know that that's not like a popular concept with Americans. We, we like to think of ourselves as autonomous and, and, and independent individuals. But in all reality, we're not. Our, our uh, identity is wrapped up in this one human family, all of whom descended from this one man, Adam, our first parent. We're born, as, as my Appalachian family likes to put it, we're born a spitting image of our father, Adam. And so since we're condemned and consigned to death, what, what we're in need of is, is a second Adam, a last Adam who will come and, and overthrow death and achieve this glorified state force. We're in need of another Adam, another representative, another head of a new humanity 
to come and redeem us from under the penalty of sin and to be the successful and faithful Adam that the original one was meant to be. And the only one capable of doing this is God himself. So the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on our skin and he steps in to do just that. He stepped into Adam's skin and he was tempted in every way that Adam was and yet was without sin. And as the faithful man, he went to the cross to bear the penalty for our unfaithfulness. He went to the cross to take responsibility for Adam's failure, for your failure, for my failure. And because he remained perfect and sinless and faithful in doing so, God didn't let him rot in the tomb. He raised up Christ three days later, vindicating him. He raised up Christ three days later as the the pioneer of a whole new kind of life for us. He was raised so that he would be the means and the model for what we would become when he returns. God raised him to be, and here's the word that Paul uses, God raised him to be a life-giving spirit. A life-giving spirit. Now, Paul's not saying that Christ wasn't raised bodily, rather, but, you know, like as a ghostly, immaterial spirit. That's not what That's not what Paul is saying. Christ was raised bodily. He ate with the disciples. His disciples touched his body and felt his his stuffness, his physicality. He was raised bodily. Rather, what Paul is saying when he calls Christ a life-giving spirit is that just as the first Adam became a source of death for us, the last Adam has become a source of resurrection life for us. He was raised and he was filled with the fullness of of the spirit. He received this spiritual body, was filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he was filled with the fullness of resurrection life so that he could share that fullness with us. To put it as, as simply as I possibly can, he was raised and glorified so that we would be raised and glorified with him. He is the means and the model, the prototype and the source of what God will do with us when Christ returns. And now here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that we carry with us this sort of sneaking suspicion that we might not like it all that much. We might not verbalize it, but we, we might carry with us this sneaking suspicion that life in the age to come might be... Um, kind of boring, something less than desirable. But it's not. In, in fact, it's what you've always longed for. Because you were created for this. You were made for this. You were made for glory, for resurrection life. And, 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 and Christ, who is more committed to your joy and your flourishing than you are, thought it worth bleeding and dying for And he rose again three days later as the source and the prototype of this this resurrection life. And I want you to think about that for a moment. He's the prototype and the model for what life will be like in the new heaven, new earth. Meaning that, that when we read the accounts in the Gospels of those 40 days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension, those 40 days where Christ walked the earth in this resurrected, glorified spiritual body, that's meant to be a foretaste of what life will be like for us when he returns. And it's, and it's beautiful. Like one, one author uh, goes on to, to describe those 40 days this way. He says there were joy-filled reunions. There was peace and awe. Plenty of meals. Fascinating conversations. 
There were country walks, fishing with friends, barbecues on the beach, and Jesus at the center of it all. That's eternal life according to Jesus. And so it will be for us when Christ returns. We will have joy-filled reunions with our loved ones and with the people of God. We will be overflowed, filled to overflowing with peace and awe. We will eat and feast and celebrate, and there's going to be plenty of wine. If we, if we take uh, our cue from what parties were like when Jesus walked the earth in his earthly ministry, the wine's never going to run out. We're going to continue to have wine, and we're going to continue to feast joyfully for all of eternity. We'll have fascinating, stimulating, lingering conversations with loved ones. Like those kinds of late, nights conver- late night conversations that you just never want to end. And they won't have to. We'll take walks in, in a countryside perfected and glorified. We'll play and enjoy cookouts on the beach and live a fully human, fully embodied existence. And listen, the best part of it all, Christ, Christ will be the center of it all as the life-giving spirit, as the last Adam. It's not a disembodied, sterilized, boring, Looney Tune kind of existence. Christ will be there as the center of it all, as, this, as the one who took on our humanity in order to glorify it. And it's a world, uh, it's, it's a world, this world, it's this world with our, our bodies and this world glorified and renewed forever. Everything sad will have become untrue and we will bear the image of the man of heaven. And if that sounds boring to you, then I don't know what to tell you other than you must be boring. Because being with Christ and being made like Christ forever is anything but boring. And our full salvation is nothing less than that. Our full salvation is being with Christ and being made exactly like Christ forever. That's full salvation. That's what we have to look forward to. Now next week, we're going to see what this sort of life calls us to. What what this, this life in the age to come calls us to. In the here and now, Paul closes this chapter with a call to live live a laboring life of love in light of these wonderful promises. But now in conclusion, I would simply say two things. First, be a foretaste of this now. Be a foretaste of this now. In verse 48, Paul says, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Notice that's present tense language. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. We're born of heaven now in the new birth. We're still waiting for the fullness of of our Holy Spirit animated bodies, but we're indwelt by the Spirit now as a guarantee of that. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit now that we might be a foretaste of the resurrection life in the age to come. The Spirit right now transforms the way that our homes are ordered the way that we interact with one another as a church family, the way that we treat our coworkers, the way that we serve the least and the lost. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead 2,000 years ago is alive in you right now, and he's empowering you for Christ-likeness right now. He's empowering you to fight your sin right now. He's empowering you to love your neighbor right now. He's empowering you to, 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 for great commission work right now. What does that look like in your life? You can discuss that in your groups tonight. 
And second, I would say this, wait, wait for the fullness. Wait for the fullness. Our text ends with saying, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will, but it's not yet. It will come. The natural comes first, though, and then the spiritual. But it will come. That's a certainty. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, we looked at this in the beginning of the chapter, but we, this gives us proof that our resurrection is coming. As certainly as Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead because he was raised as the first fruits of our resurrection. But we have to wait now, and we wait in eager expectation. Of, we wait in hope. And this becomes all the more important because of what we discussed a few moments ago, that life is full of all sorts of insufferable monotony, all sorts of unspectacular difficulties, all sorts of suffocating pressures. Life is full of weariness. We grow tired. We grow weary. We grow faint in this life. It's true. Although we're filled with the Spirit now to be a foretaste, because we haven't received the fullness yet, there are times in our life where we wake up in the morning and we wonder how we're going to continue on with this all. But what we're waiting for gives us purpose, gives us the purpose and the vision to be able to do so. Because the insufferable Monotony of this life will give way to eternal newness. The the unspectacular difficulties are going to give way to spectacular comfort. The, the, The sort of suffocating pressures of life will give way to refreshment. Weariness will give way to strength. The perishable to the imperishable, the weakness to power, dishonor to glory, and we will live happily ever after being with Christ and being made like Christ forever. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this truth. We give you thanks that Jesus rose again on the third day after his death, giving us a sign and a foretaste of what is to come. We thank you that you raised him as the first fruits of our resurrection. We thank you for raising him as the prototype of what you will do with us when he returns. We thank you for raising him as the means and the life-giving spirit, the source of our resurrection. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be a foretaste of it now in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we look after one another. Would you help us also to wait in eager expectation and joyful expectation And allow that hope to be stirred up within us, strengthening us to be a foretaste of it now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And let me just tell you that this is a meal of hope. This is a meal where we gather around in the hope that Jesus Christ will do what he said he was going to do, and that is come again. Come again and give us new life in him, not only spiritually, but resurrection.